Hello, Frontline Church, and any of you who might be listening along as our friends from other churches or other places. My name is Chad Kinser. I serve as teaching pastor in our downtown congregation, and today we are recording a special podcast uh, to discuss the ending of our study in the Gospel of Mark. If you've been around our church or listening to our sermons for the better part of the last year, you know that Mark's account of the life and ministry of Jesus has been our focus. And our hope for this series has been simply to slow down and come back to pure and simple discipleship to Jesus. In the midst of our anxious times, our hope has been to take a long, slow look at our, at our non-anxious Lord and, and be formed by Him. And so this last Sunday, we celebrated Easter, and we wrapped up this study in each of our congregations by looking at chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. This is Mark's account of the resurrection. And you might have noticed, especially if you had an open Bible in your hand, that there were some verses that we didn't cover, that we didn't preach in that sermon, verses 9 to 20. And you may have also noticed that there is an odd notation between verses 8 and 9 that states that verses 9 to 20 aren't in some of the earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel. And so if you've been a part of our church and worked through books of the Bible with us in the past, you know that we don't like to make a practice, and we don't make a practice at all, of skipping verses or bypassing sections of a book. And this is the reason for jumping in this podcast today. We want to take a brief moment to talk about what's going on in this final section, asking questions like, what are we supposed to do with it? Uh, How did it get there, and should it even be included in our Bibles? Uh, How are we to understand it? What are we to make of it? And then what does this tell us about the rest of Scripture in terms of the reliability of the Bible at large? And so to join me for this conversation today, really fun, bringing in a couple of our other pastors uh, across our frontline congregations. I've got with me uh, Aaron Addison and Dr. Matthew Arbo. Uh, Aaron serves as an elder in our South congregation, as well as serving all of our frontline congregations as pastor of theology and development. Uh, He's one of our favorite Bible teachers across our Uh, network and relationship of churches, communion of churches, and always brings insight uh, as a careful student of God's Word. And Dr. Arbo is a bivocational elder in our downtown congregation. He has a PhD in Christian ethics from the University of Edinburgh, and he spent the last 10 years teaching ethics at the university level and now works as a consultant. And every time I personally am with Dr. Arbo, we we have the opportunity to talk about life and faith in Jesus, I always walk away challenged and encouraged and more confident in the wisdom of God's Word and how it forms my discipleship to Jesus. And so guys, thank you so much for saying yes to this conversation today, uh, drawing the short straw, however you want to look at it, being a part of this conversation. Um, but I'm looking forward to unpacking this issue in the, in the longer ending of the Gospel of Mark. And so Aaron, I want to start yeah. with you. Yeah. Uh, what's going on here with the evidence of these early manuscripts as it says that these verses may not have been in the earliest manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. What's going on with those early manuscripts, and how does this passage um, end up in the Bible? Yeah, no, that's a good question. So I think kind of at the beginning, you have to go back a little bit, and it's important to understand how we even got our New Testament in the first place. And, you know, when you wanted to publish something back in the first century, it's not like today. You couldn't just, you know, send it off, print on demand to Amazon or go make a photocopy of something. Uh, Instead, a scribe would take what you wrote and would 
handwrite a copy out. And then other scribes would take those copies and make copies of those copies and so on and so on. And those things are what we call these manuscripts. And you know this happened over the course of hundreds of years. And as you can imagine, copying a really lengthy document, and I mean, the Gospel of Mark is 11,000 words, uh, copying all of that by hand, sometimes there are gonna be mistakes that were made. So most of the time, 80, 90% of the time, uh, those are really minor discrepancies like misspellings or accidentally swapping the word order in a sentence. Or in a day they didn't have autocorrect. Yeah, they didn't have autocorrect. <laughs> so, uh, so if you didn't know how to spell a word, you just did your best. Uh, uh, or you just kind of leave out a word on accident. Like there's, there's all these things, and we would do the same exact things if we sat down and tried to write out, uh, copy by hand, some uh, a manuscript or a document. And sometimes we even see that there were extra bits added by scribes. And uh, what's interesting is sometimes I think we can think automatically that those scribes are doing it for some sort of like malicious motive. But most of the time, scribes are actually trying to kind of explain something that was either confusing or missing a lot of the mm. times. And sometimes even it, it seems like you had scribes who maybe even wrote what they were saying in the margins and somehow that made it into the to the actual text later on as, as people were copying their manuscripts. And But all that to say, what's kind of amazing is we can look at manuscripts. We can we can look at the manuscripts that we have and get a general idea of kind of what happened through the course of history. We can we can compare manuscripts. We can kind of look at uh, when they were written. We can look at what they said and generally kind of conclude, at least the best we can, what's original in that. So in the ESV, for instance, uh, you're going to see footnotes all the time that might say, like, some manuscripts say this. And it's like a one-word little thing or some manuscripts Add this, and it's like two words. Or in this case, you got some of the earliest manuscripts don't include this huge section. And so I think that all that kind of background brings us to Mark 16. Yeah. And um, and when our Bibles were being translated into English, the manuscripts that they used for that um, had verses nine through twenty in it, and uh, and they were doing the best that they could to represent what the Gospel of Mark was in that. Uh, but in most modern translations of the Bible, um, it, it, and most all of them, you're going to see some kind of notation or brackets like how the ESV has that mark off verses 9 through 20 from the rest of the passage. And that's because most scholars today would say that this passage was actually a later edition and mm. not original to the gospel of Mark. And um, and so there's a, there's a couple of reasons for that or think, things to say about that. I mean, it's important to recognize this is a really early um, variant. I mean, yeah. there's references to it. It probably came around in the second century. So it's it's a fairly early variant that was around. Um, but when we look at the earliest and most reliable manuscripts that we have um, that are kind of like the, the standard now to look at, they don't include these verses. And a lot of the early church fathers apparently seemed unaware of this, um, unaware of these verses. In the fourth century, I think, you know, I think this is really helpful. One church historian um, was commenting on this section of Mark, these verses, and actually looking at it said, hey, there are some manuscripts out there that have these verses, but most of the manuscripts we have today don't have those. Yeah. 
And, uh, and whereas today it's kind of like opposite. We have a lot of later manuscripts that all include that. But in his day, in the fourth century, he gives us a little clearer picture mm. of like, oh, this seems to be something that actually was kind of less common in his day. It seems to be something that was, that was only in a few, whereas most of them didn't include it whatsoever. So some of the some of the ways that we're coming to these conclusions of it not being in the early stuff is off of the testimony you're saying of the early church fathers and some of those early church historians. Yeah, and and also I think there's internal evidence for it too. And what I mean by that is there's things even reading it and looking at it that I think, again, give us hints that this is a later edition. And some of that is like, one, first of all, just some of the vocabulary and language that's used is a little different than what's used in the rest of Mark. And again, when someone writes 11,000 words, they tend to use a lot of the same words over right. and over they again. They have a voice. They have a voice. They have a way that they actually write and, and, and do things So and say things. And in this section, there's unique words uh, that only show up here. Like uh, There's quite a few of them uh, for a small passage. Um, and also, like even just reading it, when you read through it, um, the transition from verse eight to verse nine feels a little clunky. <laughs> like it, like it feels a little bit like an addition, even to where you have you have verses one through eight, where uh, where Mark is describing uh, Mary Magdalene and some of the other female disciples going to the tomb. Uh, they you know find this angel there. They run away scared. And then verse 9 kind of goes back to the beginning. Yeah, it almost goes retrospective. It almost yeah. goes back. Yeah. It feels like a summary even uh -huh. of like what happened in the resurrection, where it goes back to say, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, talks about Mary Magdalene again, talks mm -hmm. about them interacting almost repeats with this thing. It almost repeats things, yeah. which wouldn't make a lot of sense if Mark was kind of just telling one big long story. So again, all those pieces together kind of point that this, this section, verses 9 through 20, wasn't originally a part of the Gospel of Mark. And, and I think one other thing I, I would just add to this is, um, is why, would, why would someone add this section there, right? I, I, think, I think that's kind of a question I think a lot or a lot of people ask, like, why would they do that? And when you see where Mark leaves off, whether it's intentional or unintentional, um, where he leaves off in verse eight uh, kind of leaves us on a cliffhanger, yeah. right? So it's like you got female disciples, they go to the tomb, they find it empty, they encounter this angel, and then they run away scared, and that's the end of Mark. <laughs> like, we don't see Jesus appear to people and teach people. Yeah. Like, we don't see the resurrected Jesus at all. We just see his empty tomb. And it just ends in a really weird way. And if you think about it, if you were in the first or second century and you're a scribe and you're copying this, and maybe this is the only gospel that someone's going to read like or experience, you might want to fill in the rest of the story for them and say like, hey, uh, actually Jesus did appear and did talk to his disciples and like did commission them to go take the gospel out. And you might want to fill in those things. And so it seems like, again, this is a later edition that some scribes were trying to fill in some of the story, some of what was missing. With Making up something of the church's teaching. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like, and in some ways, probably some what the other gospels at the time described yeah. um, at the end of their gospels. And yeah. so um, so I, I think we have them trying to kind of fit that in and feel that. I think that's why, uh, again, why we kind of look at this passage and we go, you know, that this is not actually a part of the original gospel. Yeah, mark. yeah. I noticed I just said they're making up some of the church's teaching, not as though they were making it up as though creating it, but no. filling up what was, you know, what maybe felt lacking here. Right, exactly. Um, maybe a, a transition question here before we get to our second question. I'd like to pull both of you in. Um, there's only two places, as I understand it, 
in the New Testament where a bracket like this is, is named. So you have this passage here at the end of Mark, and then there's that section of the woman caught in adultery there in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 7, 53 to 8, 11. So when you talk about moments of um, occurrence in the, in the New Testament where something like this shows up, we're, we're, we're talking about only two moments. So to your point, the reliability of these manuscripts is, is pretty clear in terms of you know, what's there or discrepancies or what, what the church has historically recognized as Scripture. Yeah. And, there's, and there are some other places that have like a sentence or two, but those two are the only sections that have a significant portion yeah. that is kind of added in. Like most of the time it's like a one sentence explainer or something like that, or a phrase, like a three words added or things like that. And most of the time in, um, in your Bibles, those are going to, again, have a little footnote next, like... And in, in the footnote that kind of describes, hey, some manuscripts add this in there. But those are the only two sections that have a significant thing. And again, what's interesting about them is, uh, you know, and is it doesn't really um, take away anything. You know, it's uh, nothing in those kind of variants or discrepancies, whether minor or large, are anything that changes major doctrine, changes like how we understand Jesus and the gospel. It's like, you know, for example, it's like we have a story of, of Jesus uh, with the woman caught in adultery. We have something that kind of summarizes what the other gospels already talk about in the resurrection. And so you kind of, you don't have anything that they pass significantly the changes yeah. something, you know? It's, it's nothing that, that we go like, hey, we're trying to take this out to try to kick some weird doctrine out or like things like that. It's like, no, it's just, we're trying to be faithful to what actually was written. And these things seem to have been added and probably added by Christian scribes who were adding things in there to fill in stories or to make comments on things and weren't, they're not doctrinally significant. Sure. Anything you'd add to? Uh, no, that, that's really, that's exactly right. And really lucid description. Um, I mean, in one way, this is something I thought of when Aaron was kind of giving his answer there to that question. Um, it's remarkable that these very minor um, discrepancies are so few. Yes. And uh, particularly, as we'll talk about, when you compare them to other, other texts of antiquity, that there is so much consistency, that mm -hmm. so many of the books remained intact, that we have only a handful right. of very minor, very minor sort of asterisks. Right? Yeah. That's often what they would do, but like asterisk or something similar to symbolize the, a question about the manuscript. And that they're so infrequent is really remarkable. And it tells us, it gives us a clue into um, how much attention and care was taken into the composition and copying of the manuscripts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the fact that, he, as he said, no doctrine is compromised. They, they passed the smell test, as it were, um, and so everything there is, remains integrous. So jumping to the second question, what evidence then do we have for the reliability of Scripture at large, the earliest manuscripts, just thinking about those, those early transcriptions of Scripture? Yeah. Um, it helps, I think, to think of Scripture as having its own story. So it tells a story, but it has its own story. How the story of who Jesus of Nazareth is. Who was he? What did he say? Why, what, what, is, what, what happened in those three years? What happened before? What sorts of details do we need to include? The gospel writers include those, those stories. They have their own, so there's like some differences in terms of emphasis and foregrounding, but they have a, it was a composite that we get. This was Jesus of Nazareth. This yeah. is what happened. This is the gospel and so on. And we have something similar with the epistles. 
uh, particularly Paul's letters. Um, what happens is you get um, the composition of a story, of a gospel, or composition of a, an epistle. And once the epistle's read or the gospel is composed, you then go about the process of copying. Okay? And from the very beginning, the, office, uh, the scribe is an office. So it is a, it is a protected role within the church to copy text. They're not just finding warm bodies to... No, you know, right, no, right. Yeah. They, they, well, they have to be literate, which is, I mean, that's actually not that common. Like, right. literacy rates are really low. Um, and often they need to know more than one language. Um, they'll, so these scribes receive a pretty significant education fast. Yes. And this, some of them are probably converts, this sort of thing. There's stories to that, but um, the work is, is laborious. Um, and there's there's a, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of pressure in some ways not not, sort of ex, not external but to get these things copied because there are churches without those right. documents right so there are whole churches that have not read a gospel or have had not one read wow. they've not seen the epistles um, I mean it, <clears throat> the book the whole of the Bible isn't the earliest um, for the earliest known or surviving intact Bible. Uh, is probably from around the late third century. It was discovered in the 19th century in um, St. Catherine's Monastery in Egypt, which, I mean, who, that's got to be a find. You know, <laughs> like, right. Whoever it was, they was like, oh, here's the oldest Bible that's in, in existence. You know? um, how remarkable. Um, but that, that ended up being, so there's, two, there's really only two codexes. So that one's called Codex um, Sinaiticus, and the other's called Codex Vaticanus. So one being from Sinai, one being from the Vatican. Yeah. They are whole Bibles. There are only there are like little pieces that are sort of missing. But um, what happened then in the 20th century was there were discoveries of just small fragments. So there was in, a, in 19th century, like think of like the Victorian discovering area era, right? And then um, there was just lots of interest in the history of manuscripts. Of all kinds of other manuscripts were discovered in all sorts of archives all over the world. And uh, so that we, there were so many discoveries that we have almost like just in fragmentary assembly of a composite of fragments, we have essentially whole t books, like 20 of the 27 books, just in the fragmentary forms. Yeah. Um, and so what's remarkable about that is that none of the fragments disconfirm text. Okay, so that's just incredible. And, and when there's like, mm. when we see other books that aren't included in the canon, there may be, you know, that's something else, right? That there's a different set of questions. Books that there was a debate early on about right. whether they should be included. But the, what we have in our canon, there's not this tremendous evidence like, oh, like Jesus didn't rise from the dead, or like there yeah. wasn't 12 disciples, you know, whatever the An case alternate message. Yeah, or, that's right. You don't get these huge parallel uh, rub against the grain of scripture sort of accounts, which is just incredible. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the principal reasons for that is because of the care and um, protection of the composition and copying process, the scribal process and the yeah. transmission. So the, er the early church, recall, is a persecuted church. It's not legal to be Christian, to assemble in, in, any, in any manner within the Roman Empire. So that's all done mostly in secret. Some, place, some jurisdictions have a little more latitude, but... Yeah. Uh, and so having text which says that there's a king of the universe whose name is Jesus Christ and who deserves our, our soul and exclusive allegiance is not appreciated from Rome. <laughs> quite provocative. Quite, quite, yeah. yeah. Which is about, so they're treated as a political insurrection group, mm -hmm. right? Which is why they're hunted. It's not, they don't see it just as sort of a religious sect. That the, Rome doesn't have a liberal approach to them in a right. sense of showing a lot of latitude. So they're ready to hunt them down because they pledge allegiance to somebody besides Caesar. 
So those texts become really important because they're evidence, as it were, right, from one point of view. But they're because of the social circumstances and just because of the reverence they have for these texts. This is the story of Jesus. Yes. This is what Paul, the apostle, says to one of the early churches at Galatia or wherever. Right. That they have a certain reverence to them. So they're highly protected, and so the scribal process is, is also highly guarded. And there's likely been, there's likely some pretty elaborate processes for editing you know, so yeah. in terms of making sure that the scribal consistency is there. Um, and it's just incredible, given the scale of copying and where it was. So it wasn't just in one place, you know, where books end up and where they don't, and how one little variant could may or may not get moved along, and this sort of thing, that it, there's just incredible consistency. Yeah. And that so many of the books remained intact. Um, there is no comparison in terms of reliability, just getting to the, yeah. the point there. In terms of the reliability of text, there's no comparison anywhere in antiquity to the reliability and intactness of the biblical witness, particularly the New Testament. Just incredible. Right? Um, even some of the most notable authors from antiquity, uh, just, their stuff is lost. Cicero, yeah. for example, we don't, there's lots of it. It's just gone. It's, it's nowhere to be found. It's gone. Right. Um, and the fact that so much of the New Testament is preserved. Stuff that the academy, you know, the academic circles would yes. recognize as authoritative. And there's plenty of copies to yes. make it authoritative. You're saying scripture has all the more. Yes. Yeah. That's, I mean, they're just that we have so many manuscripts that there's so much um, uh, that there's so much similarity, essentially to the point of identical. So which says something about the scribal accuracy, says something too about um, the authority of that text. So it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of amendment like we were talking earlier on. Like we're not, this, this was like an aberration mm. rather than the norm. Right. Yeah. And early, early scholars were so intimately familiar with the text. So like Irenaeus or mm -hmm. Tertullian or Augustine. These they are could, the church fathers. Yes, that's right. Yeah. So these early figures, first few centuries, are so f intimately familiar with the text that they can read something and say, oh, that's a, a, that same image comes up in like, chapter 46 of Isaiah, right? Yeah. And they've got these like, wild interpretive webs that go all over the place. But they, they also contact, because of that familiarity, they also pick up on the stuff that Aaron was mentioning earlier about the internal consistency, like the voice, slight voice change. So there's, over time, you get a buildup of wisdom Right, as as scholars sort of mine the scripture for what it's saying, as they're, they're picking up on little things that see, that's different, that's different, and each coming at it from different places, sometimes with different language, different mm -hmm. viewpoints, with added perspective, they get added, they get that much more clarity. So the canon of what we call scripture, we today call scripture, is formed a couple centuries after the, the earliest apostles. Right. But then, so less less kind of point to talk about reliability. Well, why these books? Is a kind of common. Yeah, why these 66? Yeah, like, well, how did these, why these guys? Yeah. You know? And um, there's, there's several different reasons, but one important one I think is worth mentioning in our context is the apostolic authority, which is to say that these people were eyewitnesses of Jesus, and the gospel writers are. Right. So we're not just picking up, you know, strangers who have something to say religiously. Cor correct. They were, they, were the, they were there sort of on the ground. Yes. Right? It wasn't like a telephone situation where B told A and Z and then, you know, 16. So G right. Jesus didn't right. say that, or G he... What was this case again? No, there's no question about that. All right, but it also gives, lends that much more credibility to the fact that there's not like absolute total, like match for match in the Gospels, that the Gospels all tell a story and they tell it slightly different, mm -hmm. right? But that says something about the credibility of the eyewitness account, right? Right, right. each author this. has his own voice. That's exactly right. And they have their own way of telling a story, what they emphasize, what they heard, where were they standing? 
Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where was Jesus when they were in this other place? So um, those all lend texture to the account. Then they add Paul, also an apostle of Jesus, um, whose authority is um, established. So uh, there's some, some other epistles that are just sort of once removed. So you have an apostle or sort of the immediate um, student of an apostle. So you don't have distance. And that becomes a key authority. There's also the second part is just the, the sort of doctrinal cogency. So does it match the other like range of texts that we have yeah. that say X about God? Is the this message says Y consistent? about God. And only this, this is the only one that says Y about God. Yeah. Um, so there's the internal consistency part. So the reliability is incredible. Mm. Right? The, the Bible, as we have received it, is a reservoir of wisdom and truth. It's for our goodness. And um, that, and we, we, should, we, ought, we really ought to be grateful um, for the work of, of the Holy Spirit to um, use his people to um, protect and pull together this body of text that is for our edification. And many people died for it. Now, it's a, that's one thing that can kind of get glossed over of just how many people died to make the Bible possible for us. Yeah. Um, it's really incredible. Not just in antiquity, but yeah. up to the Reformation yeah. and beyond. To take even the preservation of the text as a sacred work. Yeah. Um, and that's what's interesting to me about this conversation is that you might think that now with a modern approach to things and with our modern minds that we recognize the farther away from things, we can actually have more objective skepticism. But it's actually, no, the farther away we get, we actually are believing eyes wide open. We're, we're believing with a host of people from the earliest of time that had the closest encounter with the text, the closest experience with the text, and drawing on their testimonies over time, it only becomes more and more reliable. And so we've already stated here that there's nothing uh, about the ending here of Mark chapter 16 that compromises the teaching of the New Testament uh, we don't lose any doctrine or any essential belief. Um, if we weren't to have this, here it is, and, and so it, it remains consistent in terms of the message of Christianity. Um, when you think about this passage along with the passage in John, some people would say, well, that still messes with me a little bit, that there's, there's some discrepancies. But I guess what I would say, maybe just to chime in here uh, a brief, is what I love about these bracketed sections is they actually give me more trust in Scripture, not less. These bracketed sections are almost sort of the editorial note as if to say, there are no skeletons in the closet. <laughs> and I want you to know about this so that if you were to think there's skeletons in the closet, I'm going to out them now. Yeah. Well, and even to go to what Arbo said a minute ago, it shows the integrity of the scribal process today of mm. like, even now the Bible translators are putting out there for us, even like, hey, the best we understand it, here is what the text is. Like, and even marking, notating those things for us that most of us would have, we would have no idea. And, but they're coming along to say, hey, this passage here is, is something that's kind of like was in the original, or here's these kind of variants and things. And again, it just shows to me the level of integrity even now that, that Bible translators have. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's, um, the, I, I agree. I mean, the, 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 the asterisks, these little addendums right, mm -hmm. that stipulate, hey, we've got a question, a sort of open question here on this little part, but we're going we're gonna to put it there anyway, is a sign, as you're saying, that there's credibility right. behind this. There's credibility and warrant behind the claims. Nothing is being hidden. That's right. We're not going to put it away. I mean, I, I, we were mentioning this earlier, but you know, with some, some versions of Mark, they don't let him clear. They put a footnote. Which is a weird, kind of a weird editorial move to say that you know, there's a question, but then like it's sort of saying something about 
the status right. of that mm-hmm. thing too. And um, so it's not a, it doesn't present any like significant challenges and it doesn't, you know, because of the comp, the content of those passages, we're not, we don't have any undermining of the doctrine of God or of our, you know, doctrines right. of atonement yeah. or missiology the apostles or anything like that. No, everything's there, you know, and um, that it does something a little peculiar. Um, it's just a kind of, it's something to kind of, ponder about i mean you know it, it's and, and to talk about in a podcast like yes yeah, that's you know. right so to wrap up kind of our conversation then when you think about uh any kind of preaching of a text like we do sunday in and sunday out it's not just that we would do something like this oh this is a unique moment but we're trying to understand what's happening here there's also the so what <laughs> right there's the application what, what do i do with this and so that's kind of the last question i want to throw out is is there anything, here we have it in Scripture, we've debated as to whether or not it should be there, it is here, we, should, we can trust it, we can receive it. Um, is there anything profitable to take from this passage? Yeah, so, I, so here's kind of how I would, I would say, I, I think the way that we approach this, recognizing this is, this is some verses that are, in essence, early Christian summary of what happened uh, when Jesus rose. Uh, I think that we can look at it in, in a way of of receiving what it has for us, um, not in the level of scriptural authority like the rest of Mark has, but to be able to look at it and to just say, hey, here is an ancient um, an ancient writing, if you will, of 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 what happened. Like even even thinking through, here's a second century understanding uh, and teaching of what happened when Jesus rose from the dead. And and again, a lot of it seems to be summarizing things. So I, to me, I think a lot of what's profitable out of it is going to be similar to like what you see in some of the other gospel texts, considering it's summarizing a lot of those things. Um, and also, I think just in particular. Um, you know, sometimes just, and, and again, the Gospels themselves teach us this, sometimes just saying things in a slightly different way can make a powerful impact, you know? Um, and sometimes even just the the summary of the Great Commission that we see in this passage is, is a really beautiful way of putting it, of going into the, all the world and, and telling the Gospel to all creation. Um, that's just a beautiful way of capturing what Jesus taught us in the Great, in the great Commission. Um, and two, I think in particular, I, I love even just the idea that carries on through Luke in particular and into Acts of just like Jesus is still working through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And in particular, kind of towards the end of this passage in verse 20, where it says, the Lord, referencing Jesus, worked with them and confirmed the message by accompanying signs. And Acts kind of has that same idea where it's like Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, it's not like he just stopped. Ministry's over. Ministry's over, now go do it. Instead, um, instead, the Bible describes like Jesus is continuing to work. He's continuing to do ministry through his church, through his people, um, and empowering them by the power of the Holy Spirit and being with them. And again, it's, it's not an idea that's unique to this passage, but it's something that this passage picks up on and touches on that I think is really important that we could kind of glean from and learn from. Yeah, that's good. I've got nothing to add to that. Yeah. That's really good. And that's, that's exactly right. I mean, the, 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 Ministry of the Holy Spirit to empower the church for mission, as I think uh, what, we, what we walk away from this with. A passage of Scripture that um, came to my mind as I was preparing for this conversation, uh, thinking about the reliability of Scripture, thinking about the trustworthiness of Scripture, uh, was just Psalm 18, verse 30. This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. 
He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. At the end of this conversation, what we're all saying together, what we're testifying to Scripture, what the church has testified since the beginning, is that the word of the Lord proves true. It's a word we can build our lives on. It is the firm foundation that when the winds come, when the storms break, when the, when the rain pours, um, that, that we will remain steadfast and true, built on the firm foundation of God's word as delivered to us by the apostles, e- even here. Well, thank you guys so much for... Uh, Again, saying yes, this conversation, doing work with me today uh, on this passage, making some sense of this. And for those of you who are listening along, thank you for sharing some of your time with us. We hope that this has been a helpful uh, conversation to listen in on. And as always, if you have any further questions about what we've talked about today or anything else about life and faith in Jesus, never hesitate to pull aside one of the pastors at your congregation. Uh, It's our joy. It really is uh, an honor to help you in any way that we can. And so as we close today, I want to mention that our next sermon series will start on May 1st at our downtown congregation and on May 8th at Shawnee and in Yukon, Edmond, and South Oklahoma City. We'll be taking up a four-week study of the book of Jude, that powerful little one-chapter book tucked right in front of the book of Revelation at the end of the New Testament. And so we encourage you, if you'd like, to get a head start reading there and invite your friends and neighbors to join us for those sermons.